100 years ago this month, the demon teetotaler struck America, and over the next 13 years, that misguided road to hell would grow nothing but wonderful roses. Those roses were many and personal, as we shall find out. I'm Carl Chimidi, and welcome to the podcast. On this episode, we find out how truly beneficial prohibition was for America and for the Chimini family. Please be sure to like and share with your friends. Now for a bit of history, the temperance movement from the 1840s in England had raised its God-fearing evil head again. Prohibition in 1920 would bring radical change to not only America, but also other countries around the world, along with some unexpected and extraordinary benefits we take for granted today. Prohibition was started by churchly rural American folk who strangely connected alcohol with domestic violence. 87 whiskey-soaked years later, sadly, domestic violence is at all-time highs. Now, let's move ahead in time and look at America's first family, the Kennedys, and their non-role in prohibition. As the lore goes, Joe Kennedy made his fortune in the back rooms of speakeasies as the number one bootlegger in the world. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But while the patriarch of the Kennedy clan certainly had his issues, including playing fast and loose with the pre-1929 crash stock market, trading in illicit liquor wasn't one of them, according to David Nassau, author of The Patriarch, The Remarkable Life and Turbulent Times of Joseph P. Kennedy. As his biographer, I would have loved to have discovered that he was a bootlegger, says Nassau. It would have given me all sorts of great stories. I tracked down every rumor I could find and none of them panned out. It became really clear that all of the stories about his bootlegging were just farcical. Now for the real roses, single malt scotch. Prohibition would put scotch single malt on the map. This is quite true, with mafia players from New York traveling to Ireland and Scotland to secure whiskey for a dry and thirsty country. While Irish distillers said no thank you to the criminal plan, the Scottish distillers said let's talk. The tiny distillery located in the small highlands town of Pitlochry, called Edradour, was allegedly owned by the American mob during Prohibition. As the story goes, much of its production was to have ended up in America by various means during Prohibition. The American Prohibition market was an important one for the tiny Edradour distillery. One result of this was Edradour's continued trade with America beyond the Prohibition era when the cargo ship, the SS politician struck rocks just off the north shore of Airscape. In the Western Isles on the 5th of February 1941, en route to New York, a significant proportion of the content of the 264,000 bottles of Scotch whiskey in its hold was produced at Edra Dower. As soon as the crew were safe, the islanders smartly set to work, saving the cargo. It is thought that over 2,000 cases or 24,000 bottles were liberated before the authorities arrived on the scene. In the aftermath, police and customs officers searched the entire island and several islanders were actually jailed for theft. Not something advertised in Compton Mackenzie's best-selling 1947 novel Whiskey Galore based on the story of the SS politician, or the film it spawned. I have visited the Edra Dower distillery many times, met the current owner, Andrew Symington. He is a gentleman and ace businessman, about the farthest from a mob guy you can get. Before Mr. Symington's ownership, I can only imagine the appeal of this hidden gem of a distillery to the American mafia mobsters, the distillery being tucked away like a moonshiner still in a glen next to a perfect stream. Today, the distillery is so beautiful and tidy, but in the 20s, its appeal of isolation must have felt perfect for the illegal manufacture of whiskey for the New York City mafia. Prior to 1920, Scotch whiskey was not a popular drink anywhere else in the world outside of Scotland, France, and the UK. Prohibition was the spark that started the billions of dollars fire of the water of life that exists today. Doctor doctor people were still drinking. Workarounds existed for the well-off, as alcohol was legal for medicinal purposes. As we see, single malt scotch was apparently a digestive just before dinner for Winston Churchill. 
Records show that exports of Scotch whiskey to Canada, the then British West Indies, the French Atlantic Islands of St. Pierre and McQuillan, indeed to anywhere within reach of the United States, simply exploded overnight. The number of vessels used for rum running was incredible. It was not quite a safe undertaking, but the dangers were small compared with the risks run by the bootleggers, who were responsible for landing the illicit goods on United States territory and ensuring their safe delivery. Scotch whiskey prospered under these conditions, particularly as the official distilling of American domestic whiskies had ceased. Roses from Canada. Then to the north there was Canadian Sam Bronfman who distributed Canadian whiskey and other spirits to the American border that was then shipped by rum runners to speakeasies across the United States. No law was actually going to quench or deny America's thirst for the demon rum. The great thing to come from Sam Bronfman's, also known as Seagram's, involvement in the illicit movement of his product was his shame. Alcohol had been made illegal in Canada four years earlier, in 1917. Sam made a fortune by breaking the law. Bronfman's embarrassment evolved into a kind of obsession with respectability, something he thought he might earn through the quality of his products. He described his perspective on quality this way, look, when a man goes into a store for a bottle of Coca-Cola, he expects it to be the same today as it will be tomorrow. The great products don't change. Well, our product's not going to change either. Under his direction, Seagram set out to develop strict protocols to help it maintain standard flavor profiles from year to year. The company achieved this by even a straight bourbon such as Four Roses, incidentally one of his later acquisitions, adopted this same approach. The company even outbatched differences by adjusting proportions of 10 different base bourbons to achieve one consistent flavor. The rows of NASCAR blooms. Racers start your engines. Prohibition was the clear main route of NASCAR racing as we know it today. From North Carolina to Spokane, Washington, bootleggers during Prohibition use souped up automobiles to stay ahead of federal agents and local police while hauling illegal whiskey on back roads in the dark of night. The idea was fairly simple. Take a car that looked ordinary on the outside. Modify the engine for greater speed, remove the floorboards, passenger and back seats to store as many cases of liquor as possible. Install extra suspension springs to handle the weight. A dirt protecting plate in front of the radiator and run the prohibited booze to customers by outsmarting or outrunning the authorities. To elude federal prohibition agents, the sheriff and cops that were on the road. These daring runners needed sharp driving skills to speed and maneuver along dirt, gravel, single lane, and occasionally paved roads after dark and at times with their headlights turned off. Even before Prohibition came to an end in 1933, racing these high-performance cars became a popular pastime among the runners in North Carolina, Virginia, Tennessee, Georgia, and elsewhere in the South. They raced each other's cars, many of them Ford models, on weekend afternoons out in the country on makeshift dirt tracks. Such were the bootlegger routes of the stock car and what would evolve into the National Association for Stock Car Auto Racing, or NASCAR, in 1947. Booze runners looked for good mechanics who knew how to make their engines run faster and handle better than police vehicles. This became even more important in 1932, when Ford introduced its flathead V8. With eight cylinders, a powerful car that runners started using as did police departments to keep pace. By the nature of their illegal liquor business, veering fast along curvy, mountainous roads, runners taught themselves to be the best stock car drivers of the era and beyond. Although national prohibition ended in 1933, production of illegal whiskey continued for years afterward to avoid taxes and regulations. Many future NASCAR drivers cut their teeth bootlegging illegal moonshine in the 1940s, such as NASCAR Hall of Famer Junior Johnson, who won his learner's permit by running corn mash hooch before his NASCAR debut in 1955. Edmund Fahey of Spokane, Washington State, 
who smuggled cases of Scotch whiskey from Canada inside his modified Buick across the border in the early 20s, wrote in his 1972 autobiography that runners had to guard against getting flats in the era's flimsy tube tires and be good roadside mechanics, almost like a race car driver and crew in one. The rum smuggler put his cars through mechanical tests as tough as those devised by test drivers, he wrote. Tires were put to the severest possible tests. Heavy loads, hauled over the toughest of roads often at reckless speeds, kept the rubber on your car always under the utmost strain. Therefore, the rum smuggler at all times used the best tires that could be bought. In fact, several companies developed tires especially for the rum running trade. Many a runner served time in jail simply because his rubber failed him at some critical moment. Another rose of a cocktail. During the prohibition, many speakeasies began to experiment with mixed drinks. Illicit booze came with consistency problems, some with dangerous side effects, even death. Bartenders at the speakeasy came up with cocktails to infuse their efforts and ensure returning customers and to allay fear of being poisoned. Classic cocktails like the sidecar, the bee's knees and the French 75 all made their debut during prohibition. In the meantime, so many distillers and brewers stayed in business limping through prohibition by doing other things. Coors would get into pottery, Paps would do cheese, Yingling and Anheuser-Busch would make ice cream. All sorry substitutes for their original endeavors. The forbidden becomes a temptation. As we see much like the parent who denies their child sweets, the pushback on prohibition was extreme to say the least. By the late stages of the 13 years of prohibition, breweries and distillers were all flaunting the laws. Breweries in New York City were producing 200,000 gallons of beer a week. In the end, America's thirst for alcoholic drinks no constitutional amendment could stop. Everyone did it, even I got a rose. In 1925, an Italian immigrant who settled in western Pennsylvania would ferment wine, selling it for the crazy high price of $5 a bottle. There are photos of a room 25 by 30 filled to the ceiling with bottles of wine. He made his sales predominantly to the African-American community. White Appalachia would be suspicious of an Italian dialect regardless of his fine product. His name was Luigi Cimini, not a Sam Bronfman, but my grandfather, who would use his prohibition profits to purchase land, start a small coal mine, buy a small apartment building, and open one of the first trucking companies in America west of the Alleghenies, all in the face of loan denials by bankers carrying anti-immigrant biases during the time. That's a few roses for sure, 100 years later. So tonight when you sit with your favorite pint, dram, glass of wine or cocktail, pause for a moment and be thankful for those who drank alcohol before you and took on a 13-year drop cause for no good reason. Think of those who had to break laws, drive fast, and creatively beat a misguided amendment brought about by the demon teetotaler 100 years ago. Thanks for listening, and please like my Facebook page and share this podcast with your friends, and enjoy a drink with those friends soon, and always remember drink wisely and savor the experience. I'm Carl for Savor Whiskey.